Ms. Wolf, I've been over your new manuscript, When Your Number's Up. Actually, the full title is When Your Number's Up, The Witchmaster's Key to the Scorpion Chamber of Love, Lord Tony Spatterford and His Dog Aardvark Mystery. Pre-order now or harm will come to some small defenseless person or animal. All of that is the title? Also the 13-digit ISBN number. Yeah, if, if you don't mind my saying so, it smacks of a kind of desperation. What you call desperation, I call selfless concern for readers who might otherwise miss a watershed moment in mystery writing. (laughs) This story does seem to meander a little. That's because parts of it were written by an app, Super Monster Wombat Quest, where Lord Tony and his dog Aardvark are pursued in a labyrinth made of pecorino cheese by bloodthirsty marsupials. You've played it? Alas, no. When anybody plays it, they're inadvertently contributing to the plot of the book. I add what they do to what I write. That's why there are 932 names in the acknowledgments. Ms. Wolf, as much as we at Flickering Torch Books value our relationship with you, I must express a certain discomfort with this unorthodox approach. You know what you are? Locked in a cobwebby, outmoded paradigm. The days of one person sitting at a desk and writing a book are over, Grandpa. We're in the middle of a revolution. My next book, The Mystery of the Cobwebby Paradigm, featuring the uploaded consciousness of Lord Tony Spatterwood and his robot parrot Samuel, won't even be a book. It'll be a piece of wearable tech, Spanx, embedded with sensors and dissolvable amino acids. I'm sure it will be, but not with flickering torch books, I'm afraid. Okay, fine. Miss the whole revolution. People will look back at this and compare it to the moment when Malcolm Cowley turned down Faulkner's idea of publishing Absalom Absalom as a series of chocolate chip brownies. That never happened. We'll finish this conversation later. Right now, get ready to meet two of the old school authors I'll be looking at in the rearview mirror of my one-person Osprey-class cyberspace diving bell. And now, the man who ghost-wrote all the sex scenes of Capital in the 21st century... Colin McEnroe. That's actually true, and Thomas Piketty was very uncomfortable. You'd think a French economist would be able to write his own sex scenes, but uh, it turns out not, so uh, the job fell to me. We are going to be talking uh, to authors, not authors who write the kind of book that you just heard about. Uh, for that, we'll, you'll just have to wait. Uh, but we are going to talk to two Connecticut authors, and not just two Connecticut authors, but authors who uh, turn their fictional attentions uh, quite frequently, uh, and sometimes almost exclusively, to a single town, the same town. We'll tell you all about that, but first of all, let me just tell you who's here. Uh, they're both in a New York studio right now, uh, and uh, one of them is David Handler. His latest book is called The Coal Black Asphalt Tomb. It is, I believe, the 10th uh, Burger and Mitri mystery. We'll tell you more about those. Uh, he's written many other books as well, including the uh, Edgar and American Mystery Award winning The Man Who Would Be F. Scott Fitzgerald. Also has a pretty fascinating uh, background uh, working in, in television. And, and well, we, we, we'll tell you as much as we can about David Handler, or he will anyway. Uh, also with us, uh, my longtime friend, Lou Ann Rice, uh, most recently the author of The Lemon Orchard, which is now out in paperback. Uh, the author, I think, of a grand total of 31 books unless I miscount. Uh, and she's going to be a guest at a uh, author luncheon at Mystic Bank, Mystic's Bank Square Books on June 3rd. On June 14th, and this one has been a long time coming, uh, she will be the literary recipient of the 2014 Governor's Arts Awards, placing her in the writerly company of Arthur Miller, William Styron, Robert Penn Warren, James Merrill, Philip Roth, Wally Lamb, Barbara Tuckman, Annie Dillard. I could go on. Uh, and who's is Christopher Plummer getting an award the same as the same day that this in the sort of same? Are you in the same class as Christopher Plummer getting this award? 
I'm so humbled to say, but yes, I am. His name is on the invitation right next to mine, Captain Von Trapp. I was going to say, maybe you could just uh, learn a few Julie Andrews tunes in between now and June 14th. Uh, in case there's somebody there with a mandolin or something, and you have to maybe do that. you could coach me, Colin. I could, I could coach you. I'd be happy to do that. So um, we want to begin. I mean, we want them both to talk about uh, their individual work, but there are also a lot of sort of common threads that that knit them together. And and I mean, we'll do the big reveal right now. Um, each of them sets many uh, of their books uh, in in the town of Old Lyme, except it's never called Old Lyme, uh, and. And in fact, David Handler, you're sort of indebted, I, I gather, to Luann Rice and to Dominic Dunn for talking you out of setting your mystery novels in Old Lyme named as Old Lyme. Do I, do I have that right? That's very true, Colin. I was at an event at the Lyme Library with Luann and Dominic. Uh, it was a fundraiser for the library. It was held at the Congregational Church. We were there a few minutes early, and we were standing around talking, and Dominic uh, asked me what I was working on, and I said I was working on a uh, murder mystery set in Old Lyme. And he said, wonderful, and what are you calling the town? And I said, Old Lyme. And he said, (laughs) change the name of the town. (laughs) So I went, oh, really? And I looked over at Luann, and I said, do you think I should change the name of the town? And she said, change the name of the town. And then they both said in unison, Change the name of the town. Luann actually stamped her foot and jumped up and down. So I kind of went, hmm, I think I'm going to change the name of the town. So I changed it to Dorset, and I was very glad I did because once you say that the town is Old Lyme, you're, you're living with it, and uh, it's a small town. If you say, for instance, that the mayor of New York City likes to dress up in women's clothing and go to uh, – gay bars in the middle of the night, people will go, oh, yeah, what do you expect? It's New York. But if you say that the first selectman of Old Lyme, Connecticut, likes to dress up in women's clothing and go to gay bars, that is a real person, and he's going to sue you. You know, you can't do that. And so I was very glad I did. Well, first of all, Rudy Giuliani was a real person, too, and that didn't stop you from invoking. <laughs> That's not actually been confirmed. <laughs> well, the women's clothes part is, remember? He did He did dress in drag in public on at least one celebrated occasion. So, um, Not an attractive woman, either. No. Um, so, um, and, and there are some other reasons for this, and I'll, I'll pry them out of David in a second. But, Luann, why did you stamp your foot and jump in the air and say, change the name of the town? I don't remember why, but it just made <laughs> – I guess because I, too, I like to – set my novels in a very specific landscape in a really, you know, deeply personal place. But if I used the real name, then it would kind of, I feel like then I'd be bound to actual reality, whereas this way I'm just bound to fictional reality, which is a lot, a lot truer, actually. And yeah, and it, it, it does mean, I mean, sometimes reading your books, I mean, in, in Luann's books, uh, Black Hall uh, is the name uh, that, that she substitutes for Old Lyme. And sometimes I'll try to see if I can figure out or picture the actual landscape you're describing. The hill people are walking down right now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think sometimes that's a fruitless task on my part because you're not really describing a, a particular hill that you know. It, it's funny. There are like a few um, real touchstones for me that I don't change. The fish market is always the fish market. Mm -hmm. It's the same one. Paradise ice cream is what used to be Hallmark and now is A.C. Peterson's Farms. I've called you from there on Sunday. I was shocked to find out it was A.C. Peterson's. 
I know. a new sign and everything, yeah. And people are not, you know, I put it on Facebook, and I'm getting a lot of, what happened to the ginger ice, cr- ice cream <laughs> at Hallmark's? Um, Lowell Weicker's favorite ice cream. Was it? Yes. Oh, I, I liked grape nut myself. <laughs> 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 but um, that, so those are those are constants, and there are a couple others. Grizzled Point is constant. Um, there are few, a few, but the rest, yeah, it could be. A little bit morphed. And David, you feel very comfortable changing the ge- geography. Speaking of Griswold Point, you de- well, basically yeah, added you know, an island to it, basically, that, is, that isn't there. <laughs> well, there. When I was working on it, you know, it, it, it really, you have to change it. It, it. I started my career as a journalist, and I believe in making things accurate. And here I was creating uh, what I call the Pex Point Nature Preserve, which is Griswold Point. And I have a rickety quarter-mile-long wooden causeway out to a private family-owned island with a lighthouse and five uh, what they call bungalows, summer bungalows, which, as you know, means giant mansion, <laughs> and uh, a dock and a tennis court and 40 acres of woods. And it's not there. It doesn't exist. I made it up. So how can I say it's old Lyme <laughs> when there is no big sister island out there? So, And I've also been able to, over the course of the books, make Dorset the area in general. So I've used Gillette's Castle. I've used the Devil's Hop Yard. I've used Bluff Point. I, it's allowed me to um, widen my scope. And if I want to put a terrific diner there, which we don't the really limelight, have. The like limelight. The limelight is long yeah. gone. So we don't have a really great greasy spoon diner. So I have McGee's, you know, and uh, they have great spiral fries and chili cheeseburgers. And it's, you know, uh, it, it makes things a lot more uh, open for me. I'm really happy that I did it. But one thing in David's most recent novel that I love, it's real. I mean, it seems so real to me, but the bend in the road where I won't say that what happens, but there's a corpse. Um, that's I could see that. I that's, could, that's the real bend in the road. I by did the use McCurdy Road yeah. and Lime Street, which I call Dorset Street. Mm-hmm. And um, I do occasionally have things that are real, and I do occasionally put in the names of real people. Um, a, uh, like Paulette Zander. Our friend Paulette Zander, who owned the Happy Carrot Bookstore in Old Lyme, which is no longer with us, I uh, performed the ultimate act of flattery for mystery writing, and I made her into a chain-smoking, wine-guzzling murderess. <laughs> <laughs> well, are there are there times, David, when um, – and one difference, I think, between Luann's Black Hall and David's uh, Dorset, even though they're the same town. Luann, your focus usually is so much on deeply personal stories, on the on the kind of internal narratives of families uh, and lovers, and, and although, you know, everybody has jobs that, that project out into the community, your, your books are a little bit less, I think, about the actual dynamics of a town, qua town, whereas, David, your old Lyme is, or your Dorset, excuse me, is... So you're getting confused Yes, now, I'm right? already getting confused. You know, there's a... There's Imagine a, being me. Yeah, there would be a tendency, I think, of readers to really want to map out from your fiction to real people and go, I know who that drunken slut is. And so do, I, I do, actually, do you when I that? go to the market, I get people coming up to me saying, the slut in the red dress at the beach club, I know who she is. And I, it's like, I made her up. I don't know who it is. But I mean, sometimes it's based on real people. Sometimes it, it's not. I mean, my, my entry point is Mitch, who is a, uh, a Jewish film critic from New York, a real outsider, much like I uh, was when I first moved there and still am since I've only lived there for 28 years. I'm still a newcomer. But um, 
Mitch's counterpart and love interest is Desiree Mitri, who is the resident trooper. So we are often dealing with with crimes that are based on things that have happened in, in the community or one of the neighboring communities. Several of the books, uh, you know, I've sort of concocted the story out of out of thin air, but several of them, for instance, the, the coal black asphalt tomb, they dug up uh, Lime Street a few years ago, and uh, it was the first big regrading project in 40 or 50 years. There were still bumps from the trolley tracks there. And if you rode your bicycle along there, it would go bumpity bumpity bump. So they finally regraded it. They dug the whole thing up, and the whole town smelled of creosote and mud for for several days. And I was taking a walk one evening, and I w- they were going to bring in the big extruding machine the next morning to cover it over with fresh asphalt. And all I kept thinking was, "Wow, what a great time to hide a body, because <laughs> no one's going to find it for another forty or fifty years." Right. So. You know, these things, uh, if you're a sick puppy like I am, these things do occur to you. Well, you know, uh, by the way, this— uh, Who hasn't Nick... planned a murder? Come on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's true. Next yeah. uh, next Wednesday, we're at Nick Bellantoni, who is the state archaeologist, who's the person who gets called if the dead body that they find under the asphalt is old enough uh, and, and not a live case in any particular way. Uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, Nick is actually retiring. He's been a long-running feature on our show. I actually based a fictional character on him once, too. But, um, Luann, uh, you know— First of all, we should say that the the lemon orchard, which we're coming to, is uh, focused much less on Black Hall, although not to the total exclusion of Black Hall, uh, and much more out in California and in Malibu. But, you know, to David's point, one thing that I know that you are very interested in is this idea of small Connecticut towns in sort of the southern half uh, of Connecticut and the idea that these towns have their secrets uh, and some of the secrets are very dark. I mean, you have been known yourself to frequent actual murder trials in Connecticut. Um, yeah. and, and I'm assuming there's some kind of tension that, that intrigues you there, I guess, with the, the you know, the touristic beauty uh, of Connecticut and then just people doing bad things. It's so true. And it's interesting that when we just earlier, what flashed through my mind when we mentioned David mentioned the greasy spoon and the spiral fries. And I said, Limelight, you know, Limelight was an old cafe that used to be where the shopping center is now in in Old Lime. And what came to mind is it was a key setting, a key place in the murder trial. I seem to always mention this on your show, Colin, Mm -hmm. but and this will obviously lead into Dominic Dunn, but this was a murder trial. Edward Sherman killed his wife, Ellen Sherman. And one of the most dramatic kind of bits of testimony in the trial covered Ellen, the murder victim, talking to Ed's then-girlfriend, Nancy, who had borne his child. And um, it was kind of a standoff, a face-off between these two women that loved Ed. And it was at the Limelight Diner where I'd been a million times, and the two sat across each other at a table, and and I just can still picture it. I wasn't there, but I feel like I was. Ellen took the salt and pepper shaker, the bride and the groom, and she put the the white, the salt, and she said, Nancy, you're off the placemat. And it was like Ed and she were on the placemat. Wow. Yeah. And that was, what a great expression. I know, you're off the place. <laughs> you're off the place, <laughs> It's like you're off the island. You've been voted off the place, man. Wow. But, you know, and that's just but one. I mean, there let's there are so many to catalog. I mean, there's the the Rasmussen murder in East Lyme with you know, one speared the other with a homemade spear and Yeah, the fellow that um, uh, the lawyer who handled the closing on our house, uh, a fellow named Heyman Klein. Um, Heyman Klein. Oh, yeah. yeah. I talked to him on the phone, you know, he had very successful practice on Main Street in Old Saybrook and uh, I was watching uh, 
Channel 8 News one day, and uh, it turned out he was on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list because he had put out a hit on his mistress's ex-husband or estranged husband. Beth was... Carpenter's. Yep. And, and the murder victim was Anson Cooper, I mean, um, Anson Clinton, whose mother, Dee, was our dog groomer. So wow. it's really a small town. <laughs> really a small town. Yeah. <laughs> I think she ended up, they found her in Ireland, was it? Beth, yeah, Beth Carpenter and, went on the And they land. found Heyman in uh, Long Beach, California. Yeah. So just to be clear for the listeners. He has his no, own talk show. No, yeah, no, nothing that we have talked about for the last five or six minutes was fiction. It was This was all real stuff that, that happens in places like that. But that Absolutely. Kind of, I, I did. Excuse me. I, I was just going to say I, I, last week I was up at a library in South Windsor and a woman asked me, how can you keep writing about murders in such a peaceful, bucolic place as uh, old Lyme? And I had to set her straight. You know, I just, uh, right. you know. There's, There's no a shame. lot going on under the surface. It's the stuff that you don't see. The you know people in an affluent, quiet, uh, bucolic place like that repressed. are repressed. <laughs> They're very good at keeping up appearances, and it's the uh, things that you don't see. The the pauses in between mm-hmm. the words uh, that are so fascinating. Um, let me just uh, do a little business here and just explain uh, who we're talking to right now. We're talking to the writers, Luann Rice and David Handler. Uh, their current books are The Lemon Tree by Luann Rice, Lemon Orchard, excuse me, by uh, Luann Rice, which is uh, now out in paperback. The Coal Black Asphalt Tomb by David Handler, uh, now out in hard hardcover. As we go along here, if people have questions about uh, writing, the, the writer's life, about the specific work of these two writers, our number is 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. You'll be tweeted back at by our tweet master, uh, Greg Hill. So that's uh, WNPR Colin. Um, you know, while we're on this topic, uh, so Luann, uh, The Lemon Orchard, uh, although it, it it begins with a tragedy in, in, in uh, effectively Old Lyme or Black Hall, uh, it moves quickly out to Malibu. And, you know, these when you when either of you writers write about this Connecticut shoreline, you write about it with not just fondness, but with an artist's appreciation for its beauty. But if there's anything even more intoxicating visually and sensually uh, than the Connecticut Sure, Malibu would certainly have to be on, on a very short list, and and the writing in the Lemon Orchard really takes advantage of that. Uh, the beautiful smells, the beautiful sights, and you know, I mean, people, wh- wherever people are, they want to go someplace better, and they think that if they go someplace better, someplace really fabulous, if they have the money, the initiative, the whatever, to be in a glorious place like Malibu a lot of their cares and woes would fall away and their lives would be better. I mean, I think we all have that dream that there's a place, you know, where whether it's an, apart, an apartment in the Marais in Paris or uh, on a beautiful hilltop in Malibu or wherever it is we're going to go, we're going to go there and things are going to be better. One of the messages of so many of your books, Luann, is people bring their hell with them wherever they go, right? Yep, it's true. I guess it's called, you know, a geographic if you, you wherever you go, you, there you are. Um, but it's it's true, and in, I feel like one of the great things about being a, a fiction writer, one of the lucky things, is that you, for me anyway, I I write very personal novels. There, whatever I'm writing about, I care about deeply. It's not something from my head; it's from my heart, and usually has seeped in through my dreams. And that was true with the Lemon Orchard for sure. And but it it followed a. You know, in in the book, the main character Julia, it does have a, a tragedy that it's terrible, and it occurs on Griswold Point in Old Lyme Black Hall, 
and she can't take it. She just can't be around the physical reminders of what happened. So she gets in her car with her old dog, Bonnie, and she drives west to Malibu. And it kind of followed my own trajectory because I, too, I, I didn't have anything half as terrible as what happened to her, but I did have a sorrow. And so I I went out west, and I lifetime on the East Coast, and I wound up in this beautiful, you know, just and if anybody's my Facebook friend, they saw the photos I posted. And I mean, it was really heavenly. It was like a little lemon orchard with, you know, trees and view of Santa Monica Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. But it's it's true that whatever I was feeling was still there, even though I was I was far, far away from where it had happened. Well, while we're on I was the... really bitter at those photographs. <laughs> Cats live better yeah. than I do. Oh. <laughs> well, at some point we should talk about animals in these books. But um, yeah. Yeah. the um, but you know while we're on the the subject of the lemon orchard, I mean the other thing that the lemon orchard is about. I mean it, it is in many ways um, uh, a paradigmatic Luann Rice novel, and then in many ways it's not. Partly because it just it grapples with an entire new entirely new subject matter, and that is the plight uh, of migrant workers, of uh, undocumented workers. Uh, it's very much um, a love story uh, and, and a tragedy um, uh, that involves a man who is here without documentation. Um, and, and that that whole subject matter, Luann, has kind of catapulted you uh, not only as a writer but also just as a person living in the world and a person attracted to activism into a whole new universe of cares and concerns. Maybe you can say a little bit about that. I mean, I know it's a four-hour conversation, but oh, yeah. g- give us the two- or three-minute version. Okay. Um, well, I when I did move into that little paradise out in Malibu, um, the house needed a little work, and so I hired some people to come and work in the yard. And one of them, his name was Armando, and he, you know, somebody's working on your house, and you chat with them, or you make coffee, and you wind up getting to know them a little bit. And, like, slowly out, over time, he began telling me about how he crossed the border um, and how he and his cousin— nearly died in a whole lot of different ways. Um, Also, what it was like for him to leave his home in Mexico and his family that he loved and come here um, to try to make a better life. And that, it it really, it inspired me in a lot of of deep ways, including, it reminded me of stories I'd heard in my own family from, you know, generations, a couple of generations ago, coming from Ireland, um, leaving a place that they loved so much, not knowing if they would ever go back, uh, not having cell phones, obviously, not having the same communication, so being unable to be in touch with their families the same way that we are now, but but still like this real wrenching, ripping apart of um, from the people and place that you love more than any place to go and make a better life and try to actually, you know, afford to eat and not be hungry. So I related to it, you know, in a sort of cellular way, I think, and then got to know more about him and about what happened. And I went down and volunteered on the border to supply water for a while to um, people crossing the border. It was, it's been very eye-opening. You know, we were talking on the phone earlier today, and you were saying that one thing that you did pause about as you began to approach this subject matter for for a novel is whether you had any right uh, to write write about a Mexican migrant experience i mean that's that's not you that's not the life you've uh, you've led and you actually got some advice about that from another writer with uh, rather appropriate credentials tell that yeah. story okay i did i you know i think sometimes with fiction i feel as if there is a question whose story is it anyhow i mean True for nonfiction too, but in in fiction especially, you know, I 
I feel very comfortable with most of my material. But in this case, this was about somebody else or an, about a story that I had only sort of come to late and as an observer from the outside. So I, I called a, this wonderful writer, Luis uh, Alberto Urea, who wrote The Devil's Highway that was nominated for a Pulitzer and other, many other prizes a few years back. And it tells the story of migrants who crossed the border and many of whom died in you know, in horrible conditions. And he, he's, Luis is, um, f- his family is from Mexico. And he was so generous and wonderful. And he said, Luann, not only may you write the story, but you must write the story because your readers will learn more, about, will learn about it. You know, your audience um, needs to know what's going on. And I, I just really took a lot of strength from that. I'll be seeing him. Uh, well, I actually asked him if he would do a panel with me, if we could speak and have this conversation. So we're going to at the Chicago's, Chicago Printers Row Lit Fest soon. Um, so. In just a second, we're going to take a break. Uh, and then uh, when we come back, I want to talk to David a little bit, too, about race and ethnicity in his books, because basically he has an African-American woman uh, detective uh, or a state trooper uh, set in the, you know, ethnically not particularly diverse town uh, based on Old Lyme. But before we do that, I just, you know, I'm curious, uh, Luann, as you say, you're, first of all, you have this huge readership that has been with you for tens and dozens uh, of novels. They, uh, they're incredibly loyal. Uh, they, they, you know, they'll follow you anywhere. Um, so this time they followed you to a place um, that they probably weren't expecting to go, just uh, as, uh, as that writer said. You know, this is a readership that probably wouldn't seek out, uh, I mean, not every single reader, but a lot of your readers might not seek out a book like The Devil's Highway. And, and I'm interested, did you get much feedback? I mean, what did that do uh, in your relationship with that audience to introduce them to, to something as gritty and troubling as the experience, and, and sometimes politically volatile, as the experience of undocumented workers? You know, I've been, I love my readers so much, and they've been wonderful. I have, I I feel as if they've embraced the story because of the way, I mean, the way I write about it and the way I see it is it's humanitarian story, and it's it's about the human heart and about, you know, it's it's a story about people and families. It's not political. It doesn't take a side. It doesn't have a, an agenda. It's just about the characters and the people. And so my readers have, I would say, uniformly been accepting and um, interested. And I've been delighted by that, really touched by it. Um, You know, and, you know, I I mean, there have been a few, I can think of a few examples um, Mm -hmm. where on Facebook or, you know, I'm unfriending you or um, I don't like what you said about this border agent. And I felt, you know, but they they weren't i don't feel like they were necessarily my readers who were saying that um yeah this is maybe even a longer conversation i mean i think some people would say that simply telling that story the story that you tell and telling it with a heart and assigning you know real deep backgrounds and lives and emotions to an undocumented worker um is a political act in some ways. I mean, because there is a raid against undocumented workers, a pretty large political establishment that doesn't want to think of them as having much more identity than than some kind of, you know, non-human pest. Uh, That in doing that, in doing what you did, even if there's an an overt set of policy that goes along with it, you're doing kind of a political thing. Well, it, I thanks for saying that because I, I do I do remember having a conversation before I wrote this novel about with somebody who had also had, was kind of going off about 
undocumented workers and about they are coming here and they are taking this. And I, I just said, and this happened to be someone that I'm distantly related to, and I just said, what about our family? And about it? what what about when we came over, you know, and came here looking for something better? And it was really, she hadn't occurred, it hadn't occurred to her, it seemed. Mm. Like she was surprised to think like that. Like it was so far removed. Um, so I don't know. Well, we're going to pause here. I've actually screwed up the clock and we've gone too long. We're going to come back. Uh, we'll ask David Handler about what happens and how, why he even chose to make sure there was a, an African-American protagonist in a town based on old line. I'd be so happy if I were there No matter where I chance to be Connecticut is the place for me all right, we're back. We're talking to Luann Rice and to David Handler. Uh, his newest book is The Cold Black Asphalt Tomb. Her newest book, uh, now out in paperback, The Lemon Orchard. Um, David Handler, you know, we're talking, by the way, if people want to call in, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. In a few minutes, we'll be transitioning a little bit out of this conversation and into a little bit more about just what, what it's like to be a writer uh, in America at this particular modern moment. Uh, 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. So David Handler, you've done uh, 10 books now uh, featuring uh, this sort of de- detective duo. And uh, one of the one half of the duo is the aforementioned uh, Jewish film critic. Uh, and the other one is this uh, powerful, um, uh, tall uh, African-American woman who's a resident state trooper, former detective. Um, talk a little bit about how it was that you decided to come up with this particular pairing? Because, you know, we've all been to Old Lyme. Um, my son actually is ethnically Mexican, and he loves Old Lyme, but he's always looking around and not seeing too many people who look like him or, or people of color. A friend of mine once said that Old Lyme has a highly diverse white population. It's true. <laughs> um, you know, when I tell you this, you're going to be a little bit disillusioned, but um, I originally didn't plan any of it. I originally planned that Mitch um, and his wife Maisie moved out to the island and um, found the landlady's uh, estranged husband in the tomato patch. And it didn't really work very well, so I set it aside for a few months. I came back to it, and I um, began to realize something that I think Luann uh, shares with me, which is that I have a tendency to write broken characters, people who are trying to heal themselves through their story. My first series, Stuart Hoagie, was a broken man. And I realized that I don't do happy very well, even though I write (laughs) humorous uh, books. My characters have problems. And so I decided um, to make Mitch uh, somebody who was 32, whose wife had had just passed away from um, cancer. And he was a wreck, okay? He's a young widower. Uh, I wanted to deal with some feelings that I had set aside for about 10 years. My parents had died uh, three weeks apart when I was in my 30s, and I was really devastated by it, and Old Lyme was really where I went to heal myself, but I had never really kind of opened that door. I had kind of um, locked it and put a big dresser in front of it and put a lot of weights on it so I couldn't go in there. But I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to make him a guy who is completely lost. He isn't coming out of his apartment. And his editor comes and says, I uh, want to send you on a travel piece 
to Dorset, Connecticut, uh, or I'm going to put you on a medical leave because you're just not doing it anymore. You're not leaving. All you do is sit in the house and eat donuts. So he says, I'm not going. And she says, well, then I'm sending you to our Hollywood bureau. And he says, "Okay, okay, I'll go. (laughs) Um, So he goes out there and he's on his own now. Okay, and he's trying to make an effort to open himself up. He finds this house. He takes it. He and his neighbor find the body. And so when I got to the point of who the investigator was going to be, I, I said to myself, who would be a fish who's even more out of water than Mitch? And I said, a black homicide investigator. So I wrote a tall, steely West Point graduate who was a man. I brought him in the door, and it didn't work very well. There was no chemistry, no nothing. So I set it aside again, and it wasn't until I got the idea of making it a woman and creating the character of Desiree and giving her some uh, experiences and background that I could share with her so I could make her a character who I identified with. Um, I brought her in the door, and um, I discovered that I was writing a romance, which I didn't really know. I didn't know it was going to be a series. I just thought it was going to be one book. But when it was done, she ends up getting stepping on the wrong toes, ends up finally admitting to herself that this guy is really getting under her skin and that there's something happening there. So she becomes the resident trooper of Dorset, and off we go. And here I am now with 10 books and and, uh, working on the 11th. Uh, But in a lot of ways, it was accidental. You know, you you, you uh, kind of just alluded to it a little bit, but I'd like to flesh this out a little bit more. You know, I mean, every single writer of fiction ultimately has to inhabit uh, somebody else's body, somebody else's mind, and usually a whole cast of characters who are somebody else's. Absolutely. And so, you know, uh, people often make a lot of the fact that uh, that uh, another friend of ours, uh, Wally Lamb, who I think is at the same thing that you, you were at today, David, that we'll be talking about in a second, you know, that he, he writes women's characters so vividly, particularly the first one, uh, She's Come Undone, and I just got through with the, the Goldfinch, and that's Donna Tart writing it from the total perspective of, of a young man. But the truth is, this is just the job of fiction. You're just doing this all the time. But certain hurdles look a little higher from the outside. You know, certain bars seem like they might be harder to clear. And, and I think for a lot of us, uh, thinking of you trying to write from the perspective uh, of an African-American woman, uh, that does seem like maybe a higher bar to clear than some others might be in the world of fiction. And did you see that as any particular challenge? And did you deal with the challenge in any particular way? You know, I I really thought of it as another character. Uh, I didn't feel like it was anything that I should be afraid to touch or uh, not qualified to touch. I simply felt like, I, you know, I did a lot of acting and improv and when I was a kid, um, took a lot of classes. Did, and one of the things that you learn is that you make every character somebody who is a part of you. I I basically inhabit my characters much the way an actor who has method acting training inherits their characters. So I know this sounds a little strange, but Desmitri to me is 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 me. <laughs> uh, I don't see her necessarily as a woman. I don't necessarily see her as a black woman. Um, every character I write is in one way or another an, uh, an expression of me. I was very sensitive to it. Uh, the fact that that she is a woman of color um, 
so far, I have gotten some very, very good responses from readers who are women of color, um, and um, they they appreciate the fact that that she is a um, a person who uh, has a good relationship with her father, that she is uh, somebody who is smart, and that she is treated uh, with respect by people. And that she's not a stereotype. She's very flesh and blood. So, you know, I've been encouraged by it. But, yeah, it, it definitely is something that I had to pause. Uh, but I just decided, you know, if if you're afraid to do it or you're worried about doing it, then that's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, that's a great place to pause. Um, and when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, this, this uh, hour is flying by at high speed. Uh, I have a whole bunch of other questions for Luann Rice and for David Handler. We'll be back. Today's show was produced by me and Betsy Kaplan, author of How to Stop Worrying About Things You Can't Control and Start Worrying About Other Things, and then How to Stop Worrying That You Shouldn't Have Stopped Worrying About That First Set of Things. The paperback version will be out in August, unless solar flares wipe out all the digital information connected to the book. Wow, what if that actually happens? Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brett Easton Ellis. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of Roses are Green, Violets are Yellow, the Faith Middleton Show staff's 10th mystery novel featuring colorblind detective Desmond Cones, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we're live from the Berkshire International Film Festival. And now... Back to Colin. I should say that uh, former controversial baseball pitcher Jim Bowden, who's part of a new movie, uh, will be joining me up at the Berkshire Film Festival, along with lots of other guests tomorrow. Um, so we're talking to uh, to Lou Anne Rice, uh, whose book, The Lemon Orchard, uh, her 31st, I believe, novel, is now out in paperback, and, and to David Handler, whose book, The Coal Black Asphalt Tomb, the 10th uh, in a series of mystery novels. He's also written a whole other series of novels before that and done all other, uh, lots of other things that we probably will run out of time to talk about. Uh, they're both with us. Our number is 860-275-7266. Uh, Luann, on June 3rd, will be a guest at an author luncheon at Mystics Bank Square Books. You should probably contact them to find out more about that. And then on the 14th, she and some guy named Christopher Plummer will receive the uh, 2014 Governor's Arts Awards uh, here in Connecticut. So, Luann, um, I wanted to say a little bit, uh, get you to say a little bit about the changing life of an author, you know, you've been doing this long enough so that you really kind of watched the world uh, of, of, of fiction and publishing go through a whole lot of different phases. And I, I think it's probably fair to say that when you started out as a novelist, you know, you wrote novels and you maybe did some signings and some readings, but that was the extent of your contact with your audience, you know, and they didn't necessarily really get to get to know you, they get the, to know your work. You live in a world now where you really are expected to maintain a website. You've mentioned Facebook a, a bunch of times in in the course of, of this conversation, you blog uh, about certain things in, in your own life. That there, the wall, the veil that might have separated the writer from from her audience seems far thinner uh, than than it probably was when you started out. I mean, is that, is that a fair characterization? And, and what kinds of burdens and pleasures go along with that? 
just one. I just had a flash. Do you remember, Colin? We were on the air once with Rand Richards, Richards Cooper. The day we all three of us heard the very first time we all heard of the Kindle, and we're like the Kindle. I mean, do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that, but I, I no? but I oh. believe it. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty. I remember it vividly. But um, it, you know, it, it's I I went through a very love hate thing with social media, and I do sometimes take a break from it because. Um, it's different, but I feel mostly that it's wonderful because I'm a hermit. It, it, that's my natural state, and I like to be alone. I like to be at my desk writing with the cats, and that's it, you know. And but the good thing about both Facebook, well, Facebook in particular, but what the website and Twitter as well, that you have like a little feedback. You know, it's kind of like in it's like in Dancing in the Dark, the Bruce Springsteen. I need, you know, I'm sitting sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. I need a little reaction. Baby, give me just one look. And that's what Facebook kind of is a little bit. It's like a little reaction. You just, it's like, hi, I'm here. And then they're like, I'm here too. Um, there are some, wonder, you know, wonderful readers who've become close friends through social media. One in particular, I'll mention her name is Julia Velotti. She is a fan of both mine and David's, and she is always saying hello to us. I'm sure she's listening today. Hi, Julia. Hi, Julia. Well, can I say can and, I say hello to Monica at the ophthalmologist? I met her today too. She's a fan of the. She schedules her lunch hour so she can hear the show. All right, go back. So to what nice. You're yeah. So see, same yeah. same yeah. thing though. I mean, it's it's a way to connect, and um, so you know, I quoted Bruce Springsteen. We could also quote Ian Forster. Only connect. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, you, it, it also seems as though. You wind up, I mean, and, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll read your blog and it'll be about something that you and I did, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm thrilled to be a character. Uh, but, you know, it, there's an idea of authorial privacy and distance that it seems like it's almost unsustainable. I mean, one of the things you did, we don't have to go into all the details of it, but, you know, for this book, you rewrote a modern love essay for The New York Times uh, about the, one of the relationships that really sort of inspired you to write this book. I'm not sure you would have done that 20 years ago. Well, and actually, that I, you and I discussed this a little earlier, and I was thinking about it. I did. I wrote a modern love piece about a love affair of mine that did inspire the Lemon Orchard. And I was, you know, I, as I was writing it, I was thinking, do I really want this out in the world? Do I want to be so exposed? But I think it goes to even a bigger question that I wonder what both you and David would think about this. But when you're a writer, you don't really have control of your material sometimes. I think the material, in a way, has control of you. And it is, I mean, I feel as if I I experience something and I almost automatically want to write about it. And to not do that feels unnatural to me somehow, or it feels, it just, I don't know, I can't even quite explain it. What do you think? I, I, I want to hear David on that, but before we do, I, I do say, I think that's a great answer. And I also think the truth is we always... As readers, you know, we'll read all of Hemingway's letters just to see yeah. if, if we can understand something better, you know, about the writer. We want to know about the writer. And we want to know about the way the writer as a human being interacts with the work that the writer produces. So I think your answer is a great answer, although we should probably just say that you and I had a long conversation about this particular <laughs> essay in which I thought I'd completely talked you out of writing it. <laughs> and then I picked up the New York Times three, three weeks later, and there it was. But, well, you are my consigliari. It's so true. Right. And um, thank you for the yeah. advice that I didn't take. Exactly. So, David, yeah, give us your reaction to all that. You know, I I am like Luana and very much uh, I'm a a solitary person. I think if you're a novelist, particularly if you're a productive novelist, I've I've written like 22 novels now, I think, over the course of about 26 years, 27 years. 
you really do have to spend a lot of time by yourself and you have to enjoy spending a lot of time by yourself. Uh, you know, you have to be somebody, probably somebody who was a bookworm as a kid and, and is comfortable being alone. The um, problem for me with Facebook at first was I felt like it was going to be uh, an intrusion. I felt like I was, you know, letting people see too much of myself and that once it was out there, it was out there forever. Um, and, I, and I am kind of private, but I have actually gotten used to it and I actually kind of like it now. I, uh, I have gotten to be in touch with a number of uh, old friends and new friends and readers and the really the job of being a professional novelist has changed so much since I first started in the 80s you just you wrote a book you turned it in you went to some bookstores and and that was it and now well for starters there aren't very many bookstores <laughs> um, but a lot of what you do is social networking a lot of what you do um, to promote yourself is is spending a lot of time not writing and um, it's a juggling act for me. I, I imagine it is for you as well, because you you can become so consumed by uh, getting out there and interacting that you don't allow yourself the solitary time, uh, the isolation to really figure out what it is you want to do and let it take you there. Um, and and you just, really to, do need just to jump on that, Luann, and we're sort of running out of time here, so I want to make sure we cover a couple of quick points here. You know, I Dominic mean, Dunn. Well, you, you want to talk Dominic Dunn? Yeah. Okay, okay. We got to get to Dominic. He's okay. like the person who's at the table with us right now. We know he's here. I thought we were going to talk about Jim Bouton. All right. Oh, right. yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Luann, you, you start the Dominic Dunn ball oh. rolling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, I think this is the perfect topic to to wonder what would Dominic do. I mean, Dominic was of the three of us, me, David, and Dominic, the old Lyme writers that used to convene um, frequently. Traveling roadshow, yeah. We were a traveling roadshow. Remember the Clinton uh, the Clinton Country Club yep. event, and um, there were so many, but. He Dominic was very social, and he seemed to be out. He was always in the gossip columns, Liz Smith, and he were great friends, and he would be at a lot. And he seemed to have more of a social life. David and I were more recluses. Right. Yeah, he would hold court at various restaurants and clubs. And, and, and David, and, um, I, I, David, I in a way that's not specific to Dominic Dunn, I know that you have a little bit of a suspicion about celebrity authors, right? To a certain degree, some of the inspiration of the book, uh, The Man Who Would Be F. Scott Fitzgerald, is in, in some ways a reaction to the Jay McInerney, Tama Janowitz, Brett Easton Ellis, kind of cult of writers who were in boldface uh, in, in, in society columns uh, all, more often than they were in print a lot of the time. And that well, uh, I think what we were seeing was, was um, writers uh, coming forward who were really good at being celebrities but weren't necessarily good at being writers. Uh, it, it is two different um, paths and it's two different parts of your mind. And uh, what uh, The Man Who Would Be F. Scott Fitzgerald for me was a cautionary tale about what was happening because you could just go, well, let's create this celebrity and then we'll supply him with a book. You know, uh, we can get anybody to write the book. Like, kind of like the monkeys. Kind of like the monkeys. There you go. Yeah. Um, and um, if there's money to be made and, and um, somebody is really, really promotable, you hear that word a lot in publishing, promotable, um, you know, a little detail like the book, uh, uh, it's not that hard to find somebody who can – Pound it out. Um, there are plenty of writers around. 
Well, but you know, and 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 uh, Luann, just to sort of bring that conversation full circle, although with not necessarily landing on Dominic Dunn, I, I do think that one thing that people do forget, and I, I've been with you when people come up to you and and talk to you about writing and how they'd like to be a writer and that kind of thing. It's it is people can imagine all of the aspects of being a published writer, except the part where you just put your head down and and just do this essentially rather lonely, isolating work. Uh, it, it seems as though that's the one piece of, everybody can imagine sitting in Elaine's one table away from, from Kurt Vonnegut and Philip Roth. You know, um, nobody can imagine really what you have to do to be a writer. Well, I do want to say Dominic was a very serious writer, and he didn't like to have lunch because he worked all day, and and he was a wonderful writer. I will say he, he, you know, he started. I mean, I'm not sure how he actually started, but I know one of his first pieces was in Vanity Fair, yeah. and it was called Justice, and it was about the murder of his daughter. It was nonfiction, but then the two Mrs. Grenvilles was wonderful. I mean, it was a really, it was trollop, you know, in our time. But, um, but he did enjoy he did enjoy going out more. I. I'm the opposite. I never imagined the things that went with being a writer. I just felt like I hadn't I wasn't suited for anything else. I don't know what I would have done with my life if I hadn't found a way to you know write books and and have them be published. Um so the rest of it is it's still to this day mm. is like surprising to me a little. All right, we have to stop me here. Too. We have to we have to stop. This is I could talk to you guys for another hour. I've got that many more topics. Okay, we'll stay. Oh, yeah. right, good. Uh, and then <laughs> the we'd have to get show. into the fact that Dominic Dunn was furious with me for the last five years yes. of his life. I wanted <laughs> you to tell that story. Yeah, I we're know. out of time. Sorry, we're out of time. Oh, we can't talk Dominic Dunn anymore. David My Handler, <laughs> great to meet you. Uh, great to talk to you. Uh, Louis Fabulous Rice. to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, so we'll do this Thank again you, sometime. Thank Love you. Love you always. All Thank right. you. Go run out and get their books right now. And also one of those books that Kion mentioned. May I announce with delight the writer of the year. Oh, the great American novelist is here. Oh, the great American novelist is here. I'm Kyone Wolf, author of Public Radio Mysteries, the donors who donate organs instead of money, but not those kind of organs. They give us church organs. I mean, what are we supposed to do with a church organ at a radio station? Oh, you know, we used to have an all-classical lineup, so maybe they're on to something, but choral music is the way to go if you ask me. Out in paperback this summer.